What's up, folks? It's Matt Whitmore here, Fitter Food Radio. This is episode number 34, and we have got an incredible guest on the show today. Um, we've been very excited about this. Um, Paul's been a very patient man because we've changed the appointment time for this on so many occasions, but we have none other than Paul Jaminet on episode 34 with us today. How are we doing, Paul? Oh, great. Great to be with you, Matt and Karis. Yes, Karis is, of course, here as well. <laughs> I'm here too. <laughs> Karis is always here. But yeah, Paul, so obviously we've been fans of yours for some time. Um, you wrote the, the Perfect Health uh, book. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about who you are, why you wrote that book specifically, and then we can uh, get into some nitty-gritty details on nutrition and all sorts. Well, uh, I'm a, a middle-aged former scientist and, uh, and former entrepreneur, and uh, I, I always had really busy careers, and as a result, I ate very poorly. You know, I would eat a lot of bread and drink a lot of soda, and uh, <laughs> I ended up developing some pretty serious middle-aged health problems, and, uh, and my wife had the same issues. She's a biomedical scientist, and, uh, you know, so we were... You know, we felt like we were getting old prematurely and, uh, you know, really risk losing, you know, some of the best years of our of our lives. Uh, but we didn't really know what to do about it. And then we discovered paleo in 2005, which I guess makes us old-timers and ancestral health movement. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and that was the first thing we tried that made a difference. Uh, but it also created some new problems for us. I realized uh, pretty soon that I was developing nutritional deficiencies under the version of paleo that we were eating. Uh, you know, so I started working on, you know, fixing paleo. So I figured that would be, you know, that was the only thing I had found that would that look like a useful path forward to improving my health. And it ended up taking us five years to figure out how to make an optimized form of paleo and how to fix our, all of our own health problems. Uh, but by the time we did it, our, our strategy was to try to optimize nutrition. We'd figure out every known nutrient and what's the optimal amount and then figure out a mix of foods that would provide it. And so we worked back toward the optimal uh, diet, you know, using an ancestral natural whole foods uh, template. And uh, uh, and we finally did sort through all of our health issues, and we learned a lot about health. And, you know, we were confident that our diet could help a lot of other people heal their health, so we felt an obligation to write it up. And, and we did. So our book, Perfect Health Diet, is uh, now in its second edition. And uh, and it's been very successful. We've had thousands of reader success stories. And, in fact, we, uh, uh, we recently started uh, a health retreat business, partly with a, a scientific goal. We wanted to you know, help people learn to implement an ancestral diet and lifestyle better. And there's so many aspects to really optimizing everything about diet and lifestyle that it's really difficult to pick them up from books or blogs. You know, but if you can go live someplace for a week or more and actually, you know, participate in cooking classes, um, exercise classes, you know, experience the environment, how do you shape your home environment? It's much easier to get across all of the things, you know, people need to learn to be healthy. And we're tracking uh, the health results of our guests, and we hope to prove that ancestral diet and lifestyle can really cure a lot of health conditions. Oh, that's absolutely amazing. Awesome. Yeah. And do you, how would you um, say that your perfect health diet now differs from your first version of paleo that you tried? Well, it's much more varied and it's much more delicious. <laughs> are, the, are the biggest things. So, you know, we were overly restrictive of starches when we when we tried paleo. You know, so basically we had a lot of meats and vegetables and fats. Uh, but 
not nearly as many plant foods and not as much diversity of plant foods and also not as much diversity of animal foods and we weren't as careful about getting some of the key nutritional components like liver, egg yolks, and connective tissue. So there's a lot of uh, little aspects of our diet. We've also realized that cooking methods matter a lot. And uh, uh, But then there's been a lot of uh, growth in our understanding of lifestyle and how that influences health. And it turns out lifestyle factors are just as important as, as diet and nutrition. And um, so we actually had a fairly extensive lifestyle section in our Perfect Health Diet book, uh, but we've been expanding that significantly. So uh, at the last few Ancestral Health Symposia, I've spoken on lifestyle factors, and we're going to uh, come out with a lifestyle book sooner or later after a cookbook is done. Uh, discuss all those things, but you know, right now we're teaching them all at the retreats, and, and I think they're a big component. The, the key word there, Paul, is lifestyle, isn't it? Because I think with with when it comes to just general health, fat loss, you know, training performance, I think people tend to nitpick, don't they, what they kind of want to take on and what they don't. And often training takes the front seat, shortly kind of like followed by a bit on nutrition. But then when it comes to reducing stress, getting good quality sleep, you know, that's when, you know, that, that tends to go on the back seat and go on the back burner somewhat, wouldn't you say? Yeah, definitely. And, uh, you know, life is so busy. Uh, you know, people have so many things they want to accomplish. It's hard to get all of our daytime things done. You know, people keep pushing their activities out to 16 hours a day and trying to squeeze their sleep and their rest and their relaxation. And that's especially true, you know, if you're training and you have a job, you know, then yeah. how do you fit in your training time? It often, you know, squeezes into the evening. And that can uh, delay meals as well. So it's it's definitely a real challenge, you know. But in fact, uh, even for fitness and for athletes, you know what what you do at night, what what you know you need to you need to balance the training with uh, rest, relaxation, uh, recovery, de stressing, and uh, you know. So you, you want to have a certain amount of hormetic stress in the daytime, but you also want to have uh, a de stressing uh, balancing of that stress in the nighttime and you know so everything that you do matters even you know even the non-training parts of your life uh have a big influence on the impact that your training has oh yeah 100 percent. i'm fully behind you on that because we we talk about that a lot in our seminars now don't we well yeah i think one of our biggest battles and it's something i was just gonna um ask you to cover paul for our listeners is um you talk a lot about circadian rhythm so our, our sleep wake cycle and how really we don't seem to uh, sort of follow that very um well as our body clocks are designed to do now and like you said we spent we're spending evenings especially we live in london so a lot of people leave work and head straight to the gym um they're eating their last meal of the day at sort of nine ten o'clock at night by the time they've traveled home um and then obviously getting to bed even later than than sort of what we would encourage them to do we sort of say try and be in bed by about 10 p.m would you talk through for, for our listeners just how the circadian rhythm how important it is for health and no matter what your goal whether that's fat loss or performance or even sort of a healing of, of any health issue um what sort of role it can play well it's really important and you know, one of the places we see that most clearly is in the lifespan and mortality statistics. Um, so people who have disrupted sleep, you know, like through because of sleep apnea or night shift work, lose six years off their life. Uh, people who never exercise 
uh, lose six or seven years off their life. So exercise is one of the most important circadian uh, time givers. It tells us it's daytime when we're active and moving. Uh, other issues like light exposure, you know, people who live in very far northern latitudes start to have uh, issues. People who, who are exposed to brighter artificial lighting uh, actually have worse health. The brighter the nighttime lighting in your area, like street lights, uh, then the more likely you are to be obese and to have various other health problems. There's lots of evidence that these uh, factors matter. And if you look around at, you may be familiar with Dan Butner's Blue Zones, the uh, uh, regions of the world he's found where people live exceptionally long. Where are those places? They're, they're typically islands like Okinawa or Mediterranean islands in the Aegean. And they're places where uh, people didn't get automobiles or electricity uh, or television until very recently. You know, so if you if you're living on a small Aegean island, there's you know not many places to build a road to. You know, it's a small market for a television station. So uh, they just didn't get these modern investments. So they were living very natural lives. You know, they wouldn't have air conditioning. They'd have natural temperature exposure. They'd have sunlight in the day. They'd have darkness for 12 hours at night. Uh, they do a lot of walking. You know, so it was a very natural lifestyle. Uh, and it turns out our bodies evolved to really need that. And all animals and humans until very recently live that kind of lifestyle, you know, just automatically. That was our environment. We couldn't, and we didn't have the tools to change our environment. Uh, but now we do. So now we can make a really environment that's radically different from our ancestral environment. And, uh, and that turns out to have very negative consequences for our health. So, so what would you say um, to someone if you're sort of guiding them through what, what would a perfect health day look like in terms of, um, you know, times that you wake, times that you sleep, exposure to light and exercise for a day? The first thing I would advise everyone to do is set up their own personal 12-hour day, 12-hour night. And so every day at the same time in the evening transition from day to night and the same time every morning transition from night to day. And, you know, typically you'd want to try to sleep uh, starting within three hours after the start of your night and wake up, you know, an hour before the end of your night. Uh, so you have a little bit of time in a night environment, you know, relatively dark, dim environment where you're doing relaxing things like showering or checking email. You don't start eating. Uh, you could do things like drink black coffee. Uh, you're not physically active. You're not exposed to bright light. Um, and similarly, in the nighttime, create an, a night-type environment. Uh, expose yourself to red-orange lights, but not white light. Um, and don't be active. So it's a good time for reading. It's a good time for doing cooking uh, of things that you won't eat that night, but you'll eat the next day or the next several days. Uh, it's a good time to do relaxation, stress relief, meditation. Good time to do stretching type exercises, mobility work. Good time to do social things with intimate people you love, with family. It's a time when you should be getting rid, you know, having no stress, including no f intense physical activity. Um, and then in the daytime, everything reverses. Uh, you want warmer temperatures, you want physical activity, you want social engagement, all the stressful things in your life to take place in those 12 hours of day. You need to organize your life and think about, all right, what are all the non-stressful activities? How can I shift them into my nighttime environment in order to free up time in the day for all my stressful things? And then 
how can I organize my daily schedule so that I'm getting all of those stressful things in in those 12 hours. In the daytime, you want to have a limited feeding window. Uh, so feeding is to the daytime, like sleeping is to the nighttime. Uh, the best time to feed is starting about three hours after your daytime starts, and you should finish eating about one hour before the end of daytime, uh, except for maybe a small dessert right at the end of daytime. <laughs> and so for for my wife and I, our daytime is 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Uh, the ideal feeding window would be 11 a.m. to 7 p.m., uh, but we tend to do noon to 8 p.m. just because our evening cooking tends to get shifted backwards. And then uh, the ideal sleeping window would be 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. if you're on the 8 p.m. to 8 a.m. daytime. So that, that would be the basic structure of the day. Within the day, um, I try to do a little bit of exercise just before each meal. So we eat two meals a day, uh, lunch, and, lunch and dinner. And I try to go out running just before lunch. And I try to do a little body weight exercise, uh, uh, primal movements like uh, deadlift, squat, uh, pull-up, push-up, uh, plank uh, in the afternoon. And, and how long do those workouts normally last? Well, I like to run, and so I'll run 20 to 30 minutes. And then I'm, I'm not so fond of uh, resistance exercise, so I may do uh, 10 minutes of uh, body weight exercise. Uh, you know, the key thing is to get about 30 minutes a day of moderate intensity exercise. Uh, and you'd like to do a little bit uh, a little bit of a mix so you get both some strength and some cardiorespiratory. See, I, I, I eat between five and six meals a day, so that would be, that'd be a lot of training for me. <laughs> well, five and six meals a day is fine. Just confine it within an eight-hour window. So just... Uh... So, so you're doing an intermittent fast, uh, both you and your wife, pretty much every day. Is that that's, that's right? Yeah. Okay. And is that have you? I suppose one thing we should mention to the to listeners. So you just had um, a little baby. Congratulations. Oh, thank you very much. And I'm sure they're dying to ask if you managed to maintain that routine even with the little baby. Uh, we certainly maintained our intermittent fasting. We tried to maintain uh, the circadian rhythm environment, so we maintained the light environment. You know, we try to keep bright white lights uh, during our 12-hour day and uh, red-orange lights through the 12-hour night. And we are getting our, our baby a little bit onto a circadian rhythm, so he's now he's now sleeping, you know, in four- to five-hour stretches at night, and most of his waking time is in the daytime. You know, I'd say the, the biggest change that the baby has brought is because he wakes up one to two times uh, during the night for feeding. Uh, it sort of stretched out our... Uh, sleeping period. We used to be able to get our sleep in in eight hours, and now it takes nine to nine and a half for us to get our sleep in. But it's all worth it, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> we've had, um, I mean, our last two podcasts, that, or no, last couple of podcasts we've done have focused on um, pre and postnatal nutrition because we actually had a naturopath on to a, who was um, Emma Myhill, and she's uh, currently pregnant, so she was talking about a lot of, she follows a paleo diet and a lot of research that she'd done. I'm assuming that you continued with perfect health. Um, nutrition throughout the pregnancy were there any changes that you made at all just to to you know to sort of uh, compensate for the pregnancy in increasing carbohydrates or anything like that well the biggest thing we recommend is increasing uh, egg yolks uh, potentially increasing liver a little bit so we normally recommend a quarter pound of beef or lamb liver per week and you can add in some extra chicken goose liver uh, to get a little extra vitamin a and choline uh, you also want to get extra collagen. 
you know, so bones, joints, tendons, and soups and stews. You know, really it's uh, some of the most nutrient-dense foods. You know, so things like egg yolks, liver, uh, connective tissue, green leafy vegetables, uh, seafood. You know, those are all things that you want to get more of. One thing uh, I should, should mention probably to um, our, our listeners is you actually have a list on your website of and in your book, Supplemental Foods. Um, that's right. Which yep. we love because you've put on there dark chocolate as desired, which is just uh, <laughs> music to my ears, basically. <laughs> that's one of our uh, so-called pleasure foods, which are foods that uh, we think are healthy in moderation, but uh, you may need to limit because uh, you can overeat them. You know, so we also include things like... <laughs> milk and nuts in that category and honey and uh, things like that. Um, you know, so chocolate, you know, probably like uh, 25 grams a day is a good amount of dark chocolate, but you want to get a, a fairly dark one, like an 85%, so you don't get too much sugar. Fantastic. I've just eaten 30%, so I've, I mean, 30 grams, sorry. You say 30%? 30, no, 30 grams of 90%, so I think I'm somewhere. You're in good shape. Yeah. <laughs> I'll have a bit less tomorrow, just and I've made up for it. Do some it. squats before your next meal. <laughs> uh, yeah, everything went smoothly, so, you know, we were, we were nervous. We didn't want to tell anybody about the baby until uh, the last minute because uh, my wife showed change figured if she started talking about it, something would go wrong. So <laughs> a little superstitious, but, uh, but everything went, went smoothly and, uh, the baby's healthy. So we're, we're very happy. Paul, just to, um, backtrack ever so slightly. Um, you mentioned at the beginning about, um, you know, kind of kicking off your, you know, health journey, if you like, with a paleo diet that uh, you said that didn't really work for you and you guys adapted it, um, you know, to meet with your lifestyle and your health needs, etc. What was it that made you realize that the, the type of paleo diet you were following didn't quite work for you? And the, the only reason I asked that is because when I first turned to a, a more paleolithic, you know, way of eating, I, I did do the whole low carb, lots of protein, lots of fats, but initially, I did feel, I felt really good for it. I think because I initially, you know, I removed the breads, the pastas, and the excessive dairy um, and sugars. So I did feel good, but it, it was short-lived um, before, you know, I realized that I actually, my, my joints were hurting. I wasn't recovering from workouts. I felt quite tired. And that's when I knew that I needed to to change things up a bit and bring in some more carbohydrates, etc. Was there a similar thing with you, or did you kind of know pretty soon on yeah well my, my case was a little more complex you know so i i had some health problems and it and it turned out uh they were significantly driven by uh, uh a couple of chronic infections uh you know your experience i would say is is very common so you know basically what happens is you know when you, you switch to a new diet which has some good aspects you know things that are better uh, than how you were eating before, you'll see the improvements very quickly. Uh, but if the new diet is restrictive, then you'll get some nutritional deficiencies developing. And those typically take several months uh, or more to develop. Uh, and so it can take a little while. You know, So you feel good at first because you're repairing uh, whatever deficiencies you had on your previous diet. Uh, but then after a while, some new deficiencies crop up. And uh, this kind of pattern, pattern is especially common with people who switch from extreme diets. So if somebody goes vegan, you know, then they're missing certain nutrition. They usually flip to something that, you know, what looks attractive to them, your brain will start craving whatever it was missing. So they'll switch to a, 
you know, like a Atkins type high meat diet. Yeah. Uh, because they were they were low in meat and they'll feel better quickly and then they'll start getting deficient in, you know, the the type of plant things that they were uh, that they had an abundance of on the vegan diet. In my case, I had I had some immediate negative effects. I had a, a flare up of fungal infections. And I had some blood tests. It turned out uh, most of my white blood cells died off soon after I started uh, very low-carb paleo. Oh. And, uh, and that allowed uh, these chronic fungal infections that had had to flare up. And, uh, and I actually, I, I had had, um, I had never realized what it was, but I had had a, a chronic fungal infection since I was a baby in my uh, right ear, and that ear all swelled up and uh anyway it, uh that part was a little bit scary but once my white blood cells came back then i felt better and and i actually you know took that as as somewhat of a positive thing that uh you know the the paleo was making a difference to my health realized that uh you know the reason for the loss of white blood cells was that uh there are various infections of the white blood cells that normally the white blood cells die every 45 days because they're you know, they frequently get infections, and because uh, they're always going to the sites of infection, uh, and they they kill themselves so that new uninfected white blood cells can replace them. Uh, but some germs have developed a way of uh, uh, suppressing that apoptosis, so the white blood cells are immortalized, and then uh, and then they carry the uh, germs that are infecting them to new locations. And uh, you know, but if you starve bacteria with a a very low carb diet, you can, and with a you know a ketogenic type diet, you can uh, they can lose the ability to uh, suppress the white blood cell apoptosis, and it can all happen at once. And anyhow, so um, I had that, but then you know, just like you did, with every month that passed, and I you know I felt good, some of my symptoms got fixed, but then with every month that passed, I felt worse and worse. And what finally you know, two things. When I figured out I needed more carbs, and so I started reintroducing carbs. Uh, but then another thing I noticed, I was getting scratch wounds and they wouldn't heal. And so I had this uh, a scratch on my leg that didn't heal for uh, six months. And, um, you know, so I started thinking about, all right, what nutrients do you need for wound healing? And I finally realized that I needed vitamin C. And as soon as I started supplementing vitamin C, the wound healed. And, uh, you know, so... And a lot of other things. I, I had started losing a lot of weight, and I ended up, you know, losing like uh, twenty pounds, twenty-five pounds, which, uh, you know, I had been, you know, normal build. Um, so I'm six feet tall. I got down to one hundred and forty pounds. Wow. And uh, um, and then as soon as I started taking the vitamin C, my weight went back up. Uh, you know, I regained twenty pounds in uh, three weeks, and it was mostly, uh, you know, lean tissue. Uh, you know, so I knew I had been, you know, extremely vitamin C deficient, and I just couldn't uh, couldn't repair wounds, couldn't maintain extracellular matrix, and uh, uh, but then I figured, all right. So I know when I first started this diet, I became deficient in carbs, and I got better when I added carbs in, and then I be- and I became deficient in vitamin C, and then I got better when I added vitamin C. Well, there's probably you know 30 other nutrients I'm deficient in also. And I'd better figure out how to fix all of those nutritional deficiencies. Um, You know, but it's really hard to work back from symptoms. And symptoms may not be very sensitive, you know, so you may feel fine but still have a deficiency. And as uh, 
Bruce Ames has uh, proposed, which, which must be true, our body must triage when we have a deficiency of a nutrient and must send the nutrients to the most urgent uses. And that means that if, if you have nutrient deficiencies, it's going to show up a shortened lifespan and as diseases of aging like cancer, you know, rather than, you know, some kind of urgent imminent thing. Uh, so in some ways, it was a blessing that my diet was so bad that I uh, developed scurvy and other issues that were obvious. Um, but, you know, so I realized I can't just rely on, you know, looking at my symptoms and, you know, trying to figure out, you know, one specific fix for them. I really have to figure out how to make a highly nourishing diet that supplies every nutrient my body might need. Uh, you know, so that was the work that led to Perfect Health Diet. And just, um, you, so you've sort of on the website and in the book, you've covered, um, you have a great plate, which we actually borrowed for our Fitter Food book, because we just found it was such a... We stole it. <laughs> yeah, we did. No, we did write to you. <laughs> actually, we should, uh, I don't know if you realise, you were the first person to ever read um, the final copy of Fitter Food. I sent it to you on, I think it was like, just before Christmas in 2012, and said, can we borrow your apple, um, you call it the apple plate, don't you, or the perfect plate? Um, which just divides up, you know, fats and starches and pleasure foods. Yeah, yeah, that's, um, it's in the shape of an apple, but also with a yin-yang symbol. And my wife is of Chinese descent, and uh, so the yin-yang symbol is a symbol of balance. And we wanted to represent a balance of plant and animal foods. Uh, and, you know, so the, the paleo-ancestral community had gotten a little away from the plant food side. And anyhow, so we we like that symbol. Our our publisher Scrivener didn't like it, so they wanted to get rid of it, but we couldn't agree on a replacement, so they they relented. And, uh, <laughs> it, it stayed in our book, yeah. And we're we're working on another representation for a cookbook uh, that will complement it. You know, show the show the foods, but that's still in the artistic. Actually, one thing you mentioned before was um, cooking methods. And uh, what's really interesting, I was reading your um, article on microwave cooking. Um, I was actually reading it to my mum, and she almost fell over when I went and put a, a, a sweet potato in the microwave this week because I've been saying for years, no microwaves, no, you know, I sort of was quite against them. But actually, when you did a great summary of the science, um, there's, it's not that you should necessarily rely on microwaves, but it, they're not the sort of demon cooking instrument that we've been led to believe um, that they might be. Would you talk through cooking methods a little bit? Yeah, well, that's a great topic. You know, so really what you want are gentle cooking methods. And roughly half of all the toxins that people eat are generated during cooking. Uh, and that's especially true with industrial food. So if you think of how industrial food producers, you know, send their food through a factory, they want to they want to prepare everything really quickly. You know, so they use machines and they use dry heat, high temperatures uh, to cook things. And, uh, and that turns out to be the you know, the best way to generate lots of toxins. And, um, and even with home cooking, you can generate a lot of toxins. If you think of grilling over an open fire, you know, anything that blackens um, starches, you can do it really easily. Uh, basically, anything that dries uh, uh, starch you plant out uh, and then, you know, applies high heat well above the boiling point of water, uh, you know, will generate toxins. And so what you really want are gentle cooking methods at relatively low temperatures, Ideally, you'd like to cook with a moist heat, keep the water around. So any kind of cooking that dries food out tends to be less desirable. Uh, microwaves turn out to be a really good way of cooking. They really uh, 
as long as you keep water in your food and it doesn't dry out, then they really don't damage any of the chemicals, any of the natural food compounds. There's going to be a lot of people (laughs) air punching as they hear this. Yeah. Me me included. (laughs) You know, food manufacturers have really done a lot of research on how to how to desiccate foods, you know, how to dry them out, you know. So lots of foods, like, for instance, tea leaves, uh, you need to dry out the tea leaves. Uh, but you need to dry it out without disturbing the flavor or without, you know, damaging the food. And, uh, you know, so they do a lot of research on how to do that, and it turns out microwaves are the best way to do it. Uh, you know, it does the least damage to the tea, you know, and it's similarly with, with other foods. You know, so for, for home cooking... You know, if you're not even drying them out and you're keeping the water there, the water is protective. Uh, you know, prevents the temperature from going too high. You know, so actually, you know, home microwaves are very uh, safe for food. And uh, you know, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of stories on the internet. Like, you know, people will say they'll uh, you know the microwaves will uh, destroy the uh, the flavonoids. And I I did a blog post on this. You know, that always kind of struck me as, as odd because, uh, you know, the particular compounds that they're set to destroy are the ones that give food its color. And I've microwaved lots of foods, and I've never noticed, you know, them turning into an ashen gray you know, <laughs> color because of all the, all the, you know, colorful plant compounds were, were destroyed. And, you know, so I looked into some of the papers on this topic, and uh, if anyone is interested, they can go to our website, perfecthealthdiet.com, and search microwave in the, in the search box and they'll find that. So what, what other cooking methods would you generally use then? I'm assuming things like steaming, slow cookers? Yeah, so a- anything with water is good. So anything making, you know, soup, stews, um, anything with steaming is good. Uh, anything, if, if you're going to bake, uh, you generally don't want to bake starches like potatoes, but it's fine to bake meats. Uh, but you want to use relatively low temperatures and long cooking times. We use a pressure cooker a lot. Uh, we use a wok on the stove uh, a lot where we do stir-fries, but at a low temperature. Um, you know, so for instance, if you stir-fry in butter, butter has some water. You know, if, if, the water, if the water doesn't all boil away, then, you know, you haven't had a really high uh, temperature cooking experience. So that, that kind of thing is, is fine. And uh, you know, and then we use casserole dishes in the in the oven and, and bake, but at low temperatures. And what what oils? Um, what what you know? What do you use for cooking with normally? Um, well, we normally use uh, beef fat, which we render. You know, we'll we'll buy the beef fat and render it ourselves. We'll yeah. use uh, ghee. Um, you can you can use butter, but anything you cook in butter will go bad fairly quickly because uh, the butter has some sugar and water and other things that support bacteria. Uh, but if you clarify it, you know, so that you have ghee, then the ghee will, will store for a long time, and then the food you cook in it will, will not go bad. And coconut milk uh, is a, a big one for us. Uh, we use egg yolks a lot, so it's not a cooking oil, but it's an extremely nourishing food. And so we'll use that as a flavoring agent you know at the very end of cooking uh you know to add a little bit of fat so those are probably our main ones uh we'll use some olive oil for instance for salad dressings we generally don't don't cook with olive oil but we'll use it as a as a dressing you know so i would say 
uh, beef fat, butter, coconut milk, and olive oil are the big four for us. And what what what's your, what are your thoughts on the coconut oil? Well, coconut oil is fine. Um, we like to cook in water a lot, and so coconut milk is, you know, basically three tablespoons of coconut milk has one tablespoon of coconut oil, and so coconut oil is just, you know, the oil extracted from uh, the coconut milk without the water or the fiber uh, homogenizing agents. And, uh, you know, but we like the, the water and the homogenizing agents, and we like the flavor of coconut milk. Um, so we generally use that instead of uh, coconut oil. Uh, but coconut oil is fine. It does have some nice features. It's, uh, it's liquid at room temperature, and so you can make a mayonnaise or uh, a salad dressing with it. You know, so if you wanted a saturate, saturated fat-rich uh, dressing, then you could use MCT oil or coconut oil. And Paul, you've mentioned doing some um, ketogenic fasting. Is that something that you do on a, on a regular basis, or do you just use it maybe therapeutically, where you're just taking coconut oil or MCT oil for sort of long periods of time? Yeah, well, um, I don't do uh, I don't take oil during our fasts. I just uh, do complete fasts. Um, the only things I take during a fast is pretty much black coffee. Uh, I might. If I were doing a, a long fast, then I would take like a vegetable soup, put some vegetables in some bone broth, and add some salt, and uh, you know make a little uh, a little soup and, and eat that for electrolytes and fluids. You know, but pretty much uh, I think the fasting is most helpful if it doesn't have any calories. You know, that changes a little if you're on a ketogenic diet, and uh, you know then at the very end of the I'd still do inter- daily intermittent fasting, but you might break the fast with a somewhat oily breakfast, you know, that includes coconut oil or something with ketogenic fats. And um, you've mentioned before as well, um, in terms of using ketogenic fasting um, for people suffering from cancer, is that something that you've done a lot of research on or, or know much about, or is it just something that you've, because I know p- people aren't always sort of that keen. Yeah. Well, it's something I'm curious about, so I try to follow the literature. I wouldn't say I'm an expert because uh, uh, it's hard to it's hard to keep track of what goes on. Uh, but you know, basically, uh, ketogenic diets are they're therapeutic for certain conditions and mostly neurological conditions. Uh, you know, so lots of mental health disorders um, can be traced to defects in metabolism, and often. Uh, a ketogenic diet bypasses those and, you know, so repairs some of the, the problems leading to the neurological or mental health condition. And, you know, so people with migraines may benefit from a ketogenic diet, people with epilepsy, uh, people with borderline personality disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, other, other types of uh, mental illness. And, you know, so if you have some kind of uh, neurological problem, it's almost always worth trying a ketogenic diet. And in brain cancers, it looks like a ketogenic diet is beneficial. Uh, The situation is a little more complex with solid tumor cancers. There's some evidence that ketogenic diets may slow down tumor growth. The the problem is it's very easy uh, malnourished on a ketogenic diet, you know, like I found when I first adopted paleo. And uh, and that can cancer progression or shorten your lifespan. Uh, You know, so there's, there's risks involved. And also cancers can eventually mutate around, and 
start to you know recover their ability to grow even when you're on a ketogenic diet. So it doesn't seem like it's a it's a curative thing for cancer, uh, but it's potentially a very intriguing um, adjuvant therapy that you might couple with chemotherapy or other cancer drugs. Uh, and so going on a ketogenic diet during chemotherapy might make the uh, the drugs more effective oh, against wow. the against cancer. There's a lot of uh, you know there's a lot of interesting potential there, uh, but you know the research is it's probably going to take a while to really clarify you know everything that's going on and you know what is the place of the ketogenic diet in cancer therapy. And your um, sort of a version of, of ketogenic diet was slightly different in that you didn't suggest going as low with carbohydrates down to like twenty. 20 grams or 10 grams or whatever like Atkins did you sort of said more 50 grams but use MCT oils to bring on ketosis is that correct yeah that's right so um you know so we really want to avoid nutrient deficiencies you know so if it's a temporary you know like the Atkins induction period you know it's limited to 30 days you know then it's not so bad uh but if if this is a diet you want to be on for the rest of your life then you really want to avoid nutrient deficiencies, and including deficiencies of carbohydrates. So uh, glucose is a nutrient. Uh, we need it for all kinds of things, including extracellular matrix and immune function. And, you know, so there's going to be problems if you uh, if you don't eat glucose for uh, months and months and months on end. And so we recommend getting a sufficient amount to be able to maintain good health. And the more glucose you eat, uh, you can still enter ketosis uh, by eating more uh, short-chain and medium-chain fatty acids, and so things like coconut oil or MCT oil. And and you know, so our our preference is if you if you want to be ketogenic, don't do it by starvation, you know, by cutting out uh, carbs and protein. You know, do it instead by you know, slightly reducing your carbs and protein, balancing that by adding in uh, MCT oil. So it's more of a shift of macronutrients, but it's 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 not a not as dramatic a shift as most people think of when they think of a ketogenic diet. What what are your views then uh, on like ketosis feeding fungus? So you mentioned before about like uh, suffering with fungal infections. So basically, any. Uh, any germ that has mitochondria uh, can uh, potentially utilize ketones. Uh, so ketones diffuse through cell walls and they'll reach mitochondria. And that's what makes them so helpful for neurological conditions. They'll diffuse into the brain and our brain mitochondria can utilize them. Uh, they also, they don't need as much oxygen as, as carbohydrates do to be metabolized. You know, so they're really... Uh, they're really, in many ways, a useful source of energy that also bypasses some of our immune defenses. You know, so uh, like our body is designed to transport fats in specific ways and direct them to our cells. We have particular carriers, uh, the lipoproteins, and particular receptors on cells for picking them up, and then particular transport mechanisms within the cell, like carnitine, to carry the mitochondria. And, you know, things those transport mechanisms are meant to do is to keep those calories away from germs that can utilize them. Um, and ketones bypass that. And, you know, they're just, they diffuse everywhere. They're available to all the germs. And, uh, 
you know, so you do have a risk of, uh, of feeding uh, protozoal, uh, parasitic, or, uh, or fungal infections when you go on a ketogenic diet. And also the immune defense against those things relies on glucose. So uh, if you look in what's called the myeloperoxidase pathway for generating reactive oxygen species, it's pretty important to supply the white blood cells with glucose in order to generate reactive oxygen species, which is what they use to kill those germs. And so you get both suppressed immunity and you can get enhanced growth of those germs. So ketogenic diets are really helpful against bacterial infections, so they'll tend to starve the bacteria. But, and the bacteria can't utilize ketones, uh, but some other infections can. And so, uh, you know, there are definitely risks. And, you know, now in northern latitudes, we're more prone to getting, uh, in the advanced countries, we're more prone to getting bacteria or viral infections. But in the tropics, it's very common to get parasitic infections. And, uh, you know, so I think uh, there are definitely some risks to ketogenic diets, which... Uh, you know, people need to be aware of and, you know, be a little bit cautious about, you know, making that, you know, they're much better suited to be a, a temporary type of fast, you know, where you adopt the diet temporarily as, as sort of a, a fasting procedure, uh, you know, that may help, you know, reduce levels of bacteria in your body than they are as, a, you know, something you uh, adopt and eat continuously. You, with your fungal infection. Have you completely cured that now? Have you have you got rid of that? Well, I, I doubt you ever completely rid your body of, of these germs, but I don't have any symptoms, and uh, and you know I haven't had any of the issues I had. So you know, as a baby, you know I think I got this from my mother at, at birth, and uh, you know she had she had cancer at the time uh, she was pregnant with me. And people who get cancer are pretty prone to fungal infections. And, um, and I was in and out of the hospital my first four years with chronic ear infections. And, uh, and I think they must have been uh, fungal. And I ended up with a, a brown patch behind my, you know, I remember my mother trying to scrub it away. But, you know, no matter how much soap you used, it, it, couldn't, it couldn't go away. And I ultimately, it took, you know, about uh, 40 years later, I, I figured it out, you know, just... Uh, putting some uh, of the, the pharmacy uh, antifungal lotion on it made the, the brown spot go away. Anyhow, and that was the that was the place that uh, flared up the most when I low carb. And uh, anyway, it's um you know so as far as I know I you know I used to get oral thrush all the time. I haven't had that in years. Wow. Um, you know I haven't had any of the uh, rashes or brown spots that I used to get. You know and I also feel much better. I have a lot more energy. Um, so, you know, there's no... I, I haven't really seen any signs of uh, fungal infections in years. Oh, well, Paul, I've got, I've got a personal question. And, uh, <laughs> this, this is more personal for me than it is actually to you, so don't worry. But um, I, I, I believe I've got a fungal infection of sorts. And I often joke with Keris that I think I'm just one big walking fungus. Um, <laughs> because when I was about 13... Um, I developed a, a nail infection on my on my toe, toe on my toenail. I just assumed that had come about through wearing, you know, because you know, back in my teens, playing football, playing rugby or soccer, as you guys call it, 
um, you know, just wearing sweaty boots and in the winter when it would rain, I'd wear, you know, wearing these boots and, and then I would just stick them in a plastic bag and leave that bag tied up until I'd wear them again. And I'm pretty sure I was probably wearing the same wet boots without them ever fully drying out or anything for... He was also eating a lot of cereal, drinking a lot of soda. Yeah, <laughs> my, well. my diet was crap as well. But obviously when you're a 13-year-old kid, you know, you don't really... You don't think of that. No. Um, so I got this nail infection, which was pretty horrible. Um, but I, I, I lived with it. For years, I just only ever had this one nail infection. And then over time, it's gradually spread to other nails. Not as bad, but it's it's there. And and I hate it. You know, it kind of, uh, you know, I do, I certainly feel embarrassed about it. And I don't particularly like getting my feet out. But, but also as well, uh, when you mentioned earlier about your wounds not healing, I don't have that issue. But what has happened on quite a few occasions, when I've cut myself... And I mean like a substantial cut, not like a little graze or anything like that. Like if I've, if I've cut myself quite badly, uh, what's happened on a few occasions is around the wound, I develop like, a, as the wound's healing, it's almost like a, a rash, but, but more of like a, a ringworm type rash. Um, I can't believe I'm, I'm telling everyone this, but, <laughs> but anyway. Um, but, and, and I've noticed it now, like when I cut my knee, I cut my neck, um, I, I cut my hand. And it happened, and and I just, I don't know, I, I have no idea what it is, and I don't really know what to do to get rid of it, so can I pick your brains on this matter, Paul? Yeah, sure. Imagine uh, you just told her I said no. <laughs> <laughs> well, as far as the, the nail infunction, infections, those, you know, those are, that probably is a, a fungal infection, and, uh, you know, so good things to do, you definitely want to optimize vitamin A and vitamin D, uh, so vitamin A, eat uh, a quarter pound of liver a week, and also eat green leafy vegetables and orange plants every day. And vitamin D, get sunshine or a supplement uh, to optimize your uh, vitamin D levels. And you want to support immune function in other ways. Uh, so zinc is important, uh, iodine, uh, copper, and uh, uh, you want to get some nitrates from green leafy vegetables and beets. Uh, you want to do all the circadian rhythm entrainment things. You know, so generally support immunity. Uh, it can also be good to support uh, the extracellular matrix formation that's involved in um, so bones, joints, tendons, uh, vitamin C, silicon, and uh, as far as the the ringworm, I used I used to get those kinds of rashes a lot uh, back when I had chronic fungal infections. Oh, one other aspect of uh, fungal infections is that in many ways your best uh, defense against fungal infections are beneficial bacteria. And so another thing you can do is make fermented vegetables. You know, so you get uh, a juice with a lot of uh, probiotic bacteria uh, and you can uh, put that on your feet or under, around your nails. You can uh, mix it in yogurt and spread that on wherever the infections are. Uh, you know, so just sort of inoculate yourself with good bacteria, and you know they'll help to outcompete uh, the fungus on your skin. You know, so as far as the wound healing goes, you know, again, if you provide yourself with extracellular matrix and vitamin C uh, and silicon, that'll support uh, rapid and healthy wound healing and help avoid you know letting any kind of fungal infection get on. And then you know you can. Uh, uh, inoculate your skin with uh, beneficial bacteria from 
uh, fermented vegetables. Uh, you can also start to get, uh, there's a company called AO Biome, which sells a, uh, uh, so you spritz on a little uh, spray with some uh, beneficial bacteria, and that actually improves your body odor as well, so uh, uh, definitely some benefits there. What well, was Kara said? <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, what what foods would you recommend potentially avoiding? Uh, aside from the obvious, I mean, I I I, I must admit, I, I'd probably say that I follow the ninety ten rule. Keris will disagree. No, no, I'd say a ninety ten. Um, but you know, like my my kind of like weakness every now and again is like a tub of ice cream. It, we did. You did do. Um, we sort of followed initially. This was a few years ago. Matt was doing sort of a candida protocol. Um, and you actually got worse, didn't you? Which yeah. You noticed. So that's when we added back in, again, sort of reading your book, we added the safe starters back in. Um, yeah, I think the... those, uh, those candida diets are really, really pro-candida diets. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that was your experience, wasn't yeah, it? And yeah. he, he was getting really angry at me because it's a really strict diet and it really wasn't working. <laughs> and I kept insisting that you carry on. Yeah. Well, I... The key thing as far as avoiding foods is avoid industrial processed foods yeah. and eat a natural whole foods diet it's fine to eat ice cream i eat ice cream uh, right I, like, I like you paul <laughs> yeah you know it, it's much more important to be well nourished than to uh than to avoid avoid things and as long as you're in, avoiding industrial processed foods and eating natural whole foods then just focus on nourishment do you use any of the, the sort of gut supplements out there, like um, oregano and um, you know, sort of allicin supplements, or do you always try and do it through food where possible? Yeah, we always we all, we do it just through food. Um, you know, so a lot of the traditional herbs and spices, you know, really originated as medicinal, and you know, probably in the Paleolithic, you know, people kept them around in dried form for medicinal uses, and so and they'd be available as spices as well. Um, you know, so our cooking traditions, you know, they probably go back tens of thousands of years. Um, you know, so a lot of those traditional cooking herbs are also antimicrobial, and they can have beneficial effects on gut bacteria. Uh, but, you know, with all of these things, you don't want to overdo a uh, thing, especially ones that are, you know, powerful and have therapeutic uses, meaning, you know, they're pretty bioactive. Uh, you know, so... Typically, the amounts that make your food taste good are going to be the optimal amounts for you. Because I would say, I mean, um, I, I don't want to sound like uh, one of those people that's got, like, you know, just like an answer for everything, but I, I generally say I am, you know, I eat lots of liver and organ meat generally. Um, I, don't, I, I eat lots of vegetables. And, and, and I suppose that's my frustration is that I feel that... Because I, I feel fine. Like, I feel good in myself. You know, I'm energised. Like, my training's going well. I sleep well most of the time. The, the kind of, like, nail infection and the odd, like, skin breakout, you know, just really gets to me because in my head I'm a bit like, I'm doing so much right. Like, why, why, why am I suffering like this? I was going to say, we did, um, we did run a, a gut test on, on Matt, and we've done a few tests, and one, a few things that cropped up were he had low, you had low vitamin D. It'd be interesting to get your take on what you think optimal vitamin D levels are, because, um, again, they keep being sort of um, changed. And I know in the UK they sort of say 70 and above. I don't know if you have different units in the US. So in, in your units, it would be uh, our optimum would be 100 nanomoles per liter yeah. for uh, serum 25 hydroxy vitamin D. In the U.S. units, it would be 40 nanograms per milliliter. Right. Um, and they've actually
actually, you know, the standard recommendations have improved a lot. So, you know, at 70, you know, 70 is pretty close to 100. So I, I give them credit credit for that. Um, and you can go too high, you know. So sometimes you'll see people, you know, recommending 150 or even 200. And I, I don't think that's uh, a good idea. In our view, we, we tend to put a lot of trust in uh, evolutionary biology, and our body's clearly selected for aiming for around uh, 40 nanograms per milliliter, 100 nanomoles per liter, uh, because that's where, you know, if, you, if you're below that and you add vitamin D, then it raises the serum 25-hydroxy-D levels right away. But as soon as you reach that and you keep adding more vitamin D, then your body tries to keep the serum 25-hydroxy-D around, around that level and it puts the extra vitamin D into storage. Um, and if you overwhelm your ability to store the vitamin D, then you can raise it uh, above that, but that's probably not a, not a good thing to do. You know, so you should probably, you should get enough uh, vitamin D in order to reach that level. Um, and typically for most people, that would be a total of about 4,000 IU per day of vitamin D. So if you got no sun at all on your skin and, and your food didn't have vitamin D, then if you supplemented 4,000 IU per day, then you'd have optimal vitamin D levels. And But most people get a little bit of sun, and so you know, t- more typically 2,500 IU would be a good supplemental dose. And that's, so if someone gets out, usually, uh, I mean, the UK doesn't have the best weather, <laughs> but I think most people tend to get about half an hour a day. What would that equate to, do you think, in terms of, of cl- uh, cloudy weather? <laughs> yeah, well, it depends. If it's, if it's summer and if you're exposing a lot of skin, uh, then that should be sufficient. I would say in spring or fall, I would supplement 2,500 IU. And in winter, I would supplement 4,000 IU, something like that. Uh, but, you know, the UK is pretty far north. And, uh, you know, so you do need to rely on supplements to a great extent. Are there any other um, sort of regular supplements that you suggest, um, you know, people have either intermittently across the week or every single day? Yeah, well, the ones, uh, ones we think people are most efficient in and would most benefit from, uh, magnesium is probably at the top of the list, uh, vitamin C, uh, zinc is a weekly uh, supplement. Uh, it's, it's a little hard to get from food. Oysters are a really good source, but most people don't eat a dozen oysters a week. So, uh, supplementing zinc is a good idea. Usually, uh, we recommend supplementing iodine, even though most people, if you eat seafood regularly, like we recommend, you know, most people get enough iodine averaged over day to day, but, uh, it's not, we don't think it's a good thing to get big fluctuations in your dose of iodine. So we recommend supplementing a low dose of iodine. And that's especially important during pregnancy uh, or when breastfeeding. Um, Is that specifically iodine, or do you recommend things like kelp supplements as well? Or Well, kelp is a source of iodine, so yeah. you can take a kelp supplement as a, as a source. Uh, but potassium iodide is a really good... And uh, let me see, what am I missing? We, we have a page on our website. Uh, there's a shop tab, and underneath it, there's a shop supplements page, and that has all of our supplement recommendations. And so you can find the ones there. But, you know, I'd say the thing people most need to focus on are the supplemental foods, you know, like liver, egg yolks, connective tissue, uh, and seafood. Uh, And then there's just a few supplements that, you know, it's kind of hard to really get optimal levels from food in our modern 
Um, one thing that uh, we, we work with a, a lot of people um, because we're from we're both personal trainers and, and from a sort of sporting background so we work with a lot of people who have performance goals um, they might be doing sort of kettlebell competitions or marathons how do you suggest adapting um, the perfect health diet or just paleo nutrition generally um, I've read some of your um, you've done some great articles on, on protein intake and that's the one that tends to be um, you know sort of debated quite a lot about is it the, the protein that needs to increase specifically or is it more the carbohydrates that people need to increase yeah i would say i would say both can be increased a little but actually i think uh the, you know the perfect health the standard perfect health diet is is pretty close to optimal uh even for athletes it depends a little on the type of work you're doing if it's if it's high intensity work then you know you benefit by a little more carbohydrate and protein there's a couple of other issues so as you get to higher levels of fitness, you need to have a little bit more intermittency in how you work, and then you want, you can couple intermittency and in food intake to intermittency and in exercise. So uh, food should always be coupled to exercise. Whenever you have a hard workout, you should follow it with a, a good-sized meal. And when you do especially intense workouts, you know then you should eat extra food. Uh, so that's probably one of the most important things is to increase food intake and coordinate food intake. So if you're having a light workout, a recovery day, that's a good day to under-eat and fast and then squeeze in more food when you have a really hard workout. And, you know, there's a few supplements that are beneficial for athletes too, like creatine, you know, it has a good record. Uh, you know, so there are, some, there are some tweaks. But, you know, you should mostly, you know, athletes have pretty much the same issues everyone else does, that, uh, you know, you need to be well-nourished. Uh, you know, so it's really a very similar diet, just with some tweaks. And so, when you mentioned that you're doing the the eating within the eight hour window, if someone's doing an early morning gym session, you would then switch that eight hour window to so they ate their first meal straight after the gym session, and then maybe stopped had their last meal of the day a little bit earlier. Would you? Yeah, well, it depends on your athletic goals. You know, so if you're like a a marathoner, you know, you're not really looking to add a lot of mass. You know, that would be fine to do a gym strength workout uh, and still not eat for a few hours uh, until your next meal. Uh, you know, but if, you're, if your goal is to be massive or to maximize strength, you know, then it's good to, you know, to couple the exercise to food intake. And, uh, you know, it'd be good to adjust, the, adjust your, your daytime window if you can. You know, so if you really have to do an intense workout, it, you know, it starts to get it starts to get a little difficult to optimize everything. You know, if you can get a lunch break and and do a do like a, a high intensity interval style of workout just just before lunch and squeeze that in, you know that that really helps. You know, because you you ideally want to get um, a lot of these intense daytime and training things like intense workouts and food intake into the middle of the day if you can. Um, and what about people who uh, might be sort of slightly adrenally fatigued? What's your take on the sort of intermittent fasting for those? Well, I think it's still good to do intermittent fasting because it's curative, but you have to manage the stress. And the biggest stress is going to be in electrolytes. Uh, so if you have adrenal insufficiency, you won't be managing electrolytes or fluids as well, and you'll get uh, potassium and sodium and chlorine deficient very quickly. And so um, a, good, a good tip, you know, like get a tomato and slice it and salt it 
and eat those salted tomato slices, you know, periodically through the fast. Drink some water, uh, you know, but basically you need you need salt, potassium, and water regularly uh, during the fast in order to ease the stress on the adrenals. So basically, you know, it takes relatively little hormone release. You can get rid of an excess of electrolytes and fluids, but if you have a deficiency, your body it's extremely stressful on the body. You know, you, you may need you may need a lot of adrenal hormones in order to try and protect yourself against uh, the consequences of those deficiencies. So you want to you just want to get extra electrolytes, and you may at some point need a little bit of extra protein, and uh, you know, so you could nibble on a little bit of leftover meat or fish. I like the sound of the tomatoes with the salt on. I'm a bit of a salt junkie, yeah. so that's anything sounds... with salt, you're happy. <laughs> And how do you um, personally sort of manage stress? Because you always, whenever I hear you speak, you always strike me as very relaxed and calm and um, despite knowing everything that you know, so I know there must be hours and hours of studying and research that goes into, you know, your articles and your book. How do you sort of manage that yourself? Well, I'm sort of, I'm sort of naturally relaxed. Um, actually, my wife handles all the stress in our family. So. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, it's important to... Uh, I mean, actually, it's good to have a little bit of stress in your life, and uh, you know, but you need to manage it and organize it, and it's very important to get all the stressful things into the daytime. You know, so uh, you should have, you know, at some point in the evening where you say, "All right, everything stressful is done." You can do, you know, five minutes of breathing exercises, mindfulness meditation, you know, something to relax you, and then just think only about good things. You know, only about people you love, things that you're grateful for, and be happy. All right, and then you know, and forget anything that's a that's a source of unhappiness. Uh, and then the next morning, when your day starts again, then then remember all those things. And start <laughs> start tending to them. Do you have a list then that says things I need to stress about today? <laughs> <laughs> you put... Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you can write down all the things that I, I should be unhappy about. Put aside. <laughs> I'll do. I'll do with that at one o'clock. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Paul, just before we wrap up, buddy, um, could you tell us a little bit more about where people can find um, some more information about your perfect health retreats and you know why they're so awesome? Yeah, well, they they are awesome. So uh, <laughs> you know, they they really are. I I think the best way to learn an ancestral diet, nutrition, lifestyle. You know, they're a great opportunity to make friends with like-minded people, uh, meet my wife and I and other special guests that we have at the retreats and, uh, you know, get some personal health coaching, experience a, a luxury vacation, you know, so we've got, you know, we do these at the most luxurious properties we can find on one of America's most magnificent beaches. We've got two pools, two heated pools, two hot, uh, great food, and it's a, it's a great education in how to be healthy. We've got uh, cooking classes before every meal. We've got uh, three or four exercise sessions every day, of which of which two are focused on activity. Over the course of a week, we've got a comprehensive course in, in how to be healthy. But the others are focused on uh, you know things like we talked about how to de-stress yourself, how to relax, um, how to move well, um, how to breathe, how to stand, uh, posture how to wake yourself up in the morning. You know, I give uh, science lectures and personal health coaching throughout the retreats. You know, so I think they're a really special experience, a really unique experience. 
And if you want to learn more about them, you can uh, go to our website, perfecthealthdiet.com. There's a tab called Perfect Health Retreat. We'll have a perfecthealthretreat.com uh, website up uh, before too long. And, um, uh, and you can read about what we do there, and you can read about the experiences that guests have had. You know, I think it's uh, I think it's a really exciting thing, and I think it's going to help us, you know, really prove that ancestral diet, nutrition, lifestyle, you know, really has a huge impact on health. And if you look at how the you know the vegan movement got going and got popular, it was really there were a few early health practitioners like Nathan Pritikin who had a had his Pritikin Longevity Center on the beach in New Jersey. Um, you know, now it's in Florida. You know, he basically, you know, wrote a few uh, journal articles, you know, saying that, you know, people had uh, reduced their risk of heart disease, of heart attacks, you know, by following his vegan diet. You know, so the vegan movement got a lot of uh, momentum because of these academic studies. And we want to do the same thing for the ancestral health movement. And I believe that, you know, we're going to show that our ancestral approach really works much better conventional approaches and it really has an important place to play in healing uh, you know so we, we want to persuade the medical community and the scientific community of that uh, as well as the public so you the, you're collecting data from everyone that participates um in the health retreats and then are you presenting that um just sort of um on your on your blog on your page in a book or how is that going to be relayed back yeah well it's voluntary you know so what i'm doing is if if guests want to are willing to participate, then I'll I'll give them uh, some free health coaching in exchange for their data. Um, I ask them to uh, stay in touch and share their health outcomes with us, and so I'm I'm hoping people will. Um, and as far as where uh, the Ancestral Health Society has recently formed a scholarly journal called the Journal of Evolution and Health, and is sponsored by the society. It's a great idea for you know, people to go to the annual Ancestral Health Symposium. Revenue from the symposium funds the journal. Uh, and hopefully, you know, the journal and publishing health outcomes like this will really have a huge impact in convincing medical doctors and uh, biomedical scientists and others that an ancestral approach to diet, nutrition, and lifestyle is really a huge health improver. You know, so we're, we're really optimistic that you know, we can help the ancestral health movement get the kind of credibility that uh, vegan and vegetarian doctors earned, you know, as a sort of heart disease remedy uh, by publishing papers on that, even though we think our diet is, is much, much better. <laughs> and, you know, I think the reason ancestral paleoprimal diets have become so popular is that they work, you know, much better than vegan diets do. Uh, but, if you just looked in PubMed, looked at the medical literature, you wouldn't, you know, you, you wouldn't see you that. You'd see it, all yeah. these papers showing, you know, great health outcomes for vegan programs, uh, and so we want to, uh, we want to fix that. We want to, uh, uh, you know, gather the data and publish it, and you know, we want to find out, you know, what really happens if, for some reason, you know, some health condition or some type of people. Uh, don't do well, then we want to learn about that and uh, be able to tweak our advice in order to make it really work well for everybody. It's amazing. I mean, on our, on our online plans and in our seminars and webinars that we run, we always mention 
um, you, your blog and, and your book and sort of say to people, this is where you need to be going because that's where a lot of the latest science and research is presented and in a, in a way that's really easy to follow and easy to understand. So we're just going to keep following you, basically. Uh, <laughs> uh, thank you very much, Karis. <laughs> when yeah, you discover new so. things, we'll just feed them back to everyone else as well. And Yeah, I look forward to the new book. So you, your, new, your next book is a, a recipe book, and then you said there's also a book on lifestyle, perfect health yeah, lifestyle. Yeah, so we're working on a cookbook. Uh, uh, my wife and I really want to finish our cookbook this winter. and uh, And then... At some point after that, when I get time, then I'll write up a lifestyle book uh, and something on weight loss. And and then beyond that, uh, well, we have our retreats, and we're constantly developing our retreat curriculum. We're planning to create like a graduate program for uh, a more advanced program for alumni of the retreats who want to come back and get uh, new information. And we're also planning to create continuing medical education courses for doctors. So we might have like a weekend retreat for doctors and, uh, you know, teach them about diet, nutrition, and lifestyle and how they can incorporate that into their practice. Uh, you know, maybe something similar for health coaches. And, uh, and long term, I want to create a video series. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, projects that are in progress, you know, but I think uh, uh, the cookbook and the retreats are... I think, I think you might have to uh, start tweaking your um, sleep and waking hour windows, buddy, to fit it all in. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, I'm hoping to train our baby to be a good assistant. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, Paul, listen, buddy, thank you so much again um, for coming on the show. Uh, like, I really, really do appreciate you giving up your time. We know you're a busy guy. Um, but just quickly, you want to give another shout-out to your book, The Perfect Health Diet. You know, we, we've, we bought it, and then we bought the UK edition when that came out. So there is a UK edition. And if I'm not mistaken, it's available on Amazon and, of course, on perfecthealthdiet.com. Yep, yeah, you can get it. Uh, there's a North American edition, an Australian edition, a UK edition, and a Hungarian edition. Oh, wow. Check and, you out. Uh, yeah, so it, it really is the best book on ancestral dieting and nutrition. And, uh, you know, so check that out. Check out our website, perfecthealthdiet.com, and check out our retreats. So, you know, if you want to have a luxury vacation and learn how to be healthy at the same time, then uh, it's a great opportunity. We might cook on ourselves. No, I'm saying that. I'm going to do the stress bit, and then you can learn to cook properly. <laughs> I can learn to cook properly. <laughs> you can already cook, but you can take it to the next you, level. You, you've just completely screwed yourself. <laughs> no dinner for you tonight. One other thing I'll just mention um, about your book, Paul, is just to our listeners out there, it's a great book for... Um, sort of what I would say is parents my parents generation so they're in their 60s um, and I know my dad personally loves your book and found it really helpful because he's in the fat phobic generation who are being told to lower um, fat intake you know for cholesterol and, and to lower his risk of heart disease um, and he just found it incredibly useful and um, very easy to apply the principles the way that you sort of talk about carbohydrates fats and proteins and percentage of calories um, so to everybody out there who's having that argument with their parents about cholesterol and fat, it's a great book for that, where you can just let someone else do the argument for you, basically. Yeah, and I think it's it's relatively easy for people to adopt our diet because it's, you know, it's similar to gourmet cuisine. It's, you know, the proportions that are most nourishing actually turn out to be the most delicious as well. You know, which makes sense when you think about it. our brain evolved to like things that are good for us, not to like things that are bad for us. And 
you know, when people start eating it, then, you know, they find it a very comfortable and natural way to eat. Awesome. Well, Paul, um, this episode will be out very soon, buddy. Uh, thank you once again. And uh, good luck with everything that you're working on. Uh, congratulations once again with the new addition to the family. And um, hopefully we'll have you on again in, uh, you know, in due course and we can see what the, the progress has been, both with the business, the family, etc., etc. Yeah, thank you very much, man. Awesome. Uh, yeah, Brilliant stuff, buddy. Well, enjoy the rest of your day because uh, you are, what, six hours behind? Yeah, something like that or five. So you got a good... You got a good chunk of the day left. Ours is almost over. It's dinner time soon. <laughs> um, but Paul, thanks, mate, and uh, we will speak thank to you, you soon. Thank you so much. All right, thank you very much.